good to be with you this morning as we return to the book of Genesis. We uh, left off a couple of months ago now, and I know uh, as some of you anticipated this chapter, you thought I might pick up at chapter 39 and move on from there, but we will endeavor to uh, cover this chapter today and see what the Lord has for us. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 38. I'm going to read for us just the first seven verses. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Hazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife from Ur, his firstborn, for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we quiet our hearts before you this morning with your word open in front of us, in the presence of your people, in the presence of your Holy Spirit, gathered to hear from you. And so we wait for you. We ask that you would indeed speak to us this morning from this passage by your Spirit. As we look at a man whose family was in disarray, as we look at a story that is uncomfortable to contemplate, may we not push it off to some place in our mind where this is just an oddity or this is something we'd like to move past. Help us as we engage with your word, all of which is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. So equip us now by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have been uh, reading in uh, your Bible this year, and if you've uh, made a New Year's resolution, or maybe it's just the turn of the calendar, uh, which is when you begin to uh, read again in Genesis, you have probably already read through this passage and, and uh, probably wondered to yourself how we were going to deal with it in, uh, in preaching through it. And uh, it is a, a difficult passage. It has uh, certain challenges for us, not the least of which is that when we started uh, a few weeks ago and started in chapter 37, we sort of switched gears and we began to focus on what is often referred to as the Joseph narrative. 
that the remainder of Genesis is focused on Joseph, it seems like. It's his story. It's how he gets sold into slavery in 37. And in 39, we see what that looks like. And then on and on throughout the remainder of the book of Genesis. And we wonder why after having gotten started in chapter 37 with the Joseph narrative and all that's gone on there and Joseph's been sold and and all of that kind of stuff, why do we pause from that and switch gears, it seems like, and focus on Judah? And not just Judah. I mean, he is another brother and he would be uh, worth looking at, of course, but such a story that is such a contrast to the Joseph character and what he is like and what we learn about him, what we learn from his life, etc. Why is it that chapter 38 is located right smack after 37 and the story about Joseph, when we're now going to talk about Judah and move back to Joseph and continue on from there? Well, scholars discuss that and debate that, and there are some who think that it's just misplaced, doesn't belong here, it has nothing to do with what came before, has nothing to do with what came after, and of course those would be the more liberal scholars who don't recognize that there are two authors of Genesis. There is the man, Moses, who penned it, who wrote it down, and there is God who inspired it. And so why would God inspire chapter 38 here? And in fact, why would Moses place it here? Well, I think the answer to that, the key to understanding that conundrum is that this story is not about Judah. And this story is not about sexual immorality. This story is about the children. This story is about the offspring. This story is about the line of Jacob. And so, as we focus in this section on Judah's line, we see that there are problems in Judah's line. There are problems in Judah's family. And so we're going to work our way through this chapter today. And we notice, first of all, that the the line is wickedly threatened. Threatened by their own wickedness that... First of all, Judah has married a Canaanite woman, which is a no-no, but he's taken a Canaanite as his wife, and he has born children with her, and then when uh, those children grow up, he begins to give them in marriage, and first uh, Ur is the first one, and Ur is given a wife, and his wife's name is Tamar, and, uh, but he is so wicked that God puts him to death. Do you see that in verses 6 and 7? Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Have you ever thought about what kind of wickedness would require, uh, would, would, would cause the Lord to put someone to death? We have no idea what it is, and we're not going to speculate today what his wickedness was. But that's the description we have of him. He gets married. He's the firstborn of Judah. But he's so wicked that God puts him to death. That's a a second threat to the line of Judah here. The first is that Judah went and married a Canaanite woman, which is not so much an issue because uh, because of her ethnicity, but more because of the religious aspects involved to take her into his house would be uh, to invite in Canaanite religion, which was a no-no. And so 
Uh, that's the first threat. The second threat is that Ur, who's the firstborn, and you see the emphasis a couple of times in there, Ur the firstborn, Ur the firstborn. What happens to him? Well, he gets married. Hey, great. And then he gets killed because he's wicked. The Lord puts him to death. That's another threat to the line of Judah. But of course, we're not done yet, are we? We continue in verses 8 through 10. We see that Judah said to Onan, Onan the second brother, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, would be counted as his brother's. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Here's another threat. The threat of the wickedness of Onan that though he was tasked with taking on his brother's widow and giving children to his older brother's widow, he recognized that those children, particularly that firstborn son, would be considered his brother's heir and not his heir. Keep your fingers here in Genesis chapter 38 and turn over to Deuteronomy 25. We have this law given, laws concerning leveret marriage. Deuteronomy chapter 25, this is something that was existent in their culture and it was a, a way to pass on, make sure there was an heir for the firstborn. Ur is the firstborn. The firstborn needs, uh, needs an heir to carry on the line. But of course, he was put to death. So now he's dead. Well, the second son is to come in and he's to take uh, his brother's wife as his own and raise up offspring for him, not for himself. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 25, the giving of this law, verse 5, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel, raising up seed for the older brother. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Interesting law that they had in that land. But when you think about how important that firstborn was, how important the inheritance and the line of succession and all of that stuff was, it begins to make sense. And in our context, it makes sense. And so you had Tamar, the wife of the oldest, given to Onan, who is the second, for the purpose of raising up children for Ur, the firstborn. And Onan is willing to marry her 
He's willing to go into her, but he is not willing to give offspring to her. He's not willing to give offspring to his older brother. And God considers that of such a great wickedness that he puts him to death too. And so here Judah, having three sons, the oldest died because of his wickedness, unexplained, we don't know what it was. The second died because of his wickedness, and we know what it was. He was unwilling to participate and give a a child to his brother, so he took advantage of the marriage relationship, but he was not willing to uh, let her conceive, and that was wicked in God's sight, such that God put him to death also. Judah's down to one son, and it's his youngest son, who's not even grown up yet. But you can see that the line is being wickedly threatened here, threatened by the wickedness of, of three men so far. Judah, who took a Canaanite wife, shouldn't have done that. And then uh, Ur with his sin, unnamed but terrible, and Onan with his sin, terrible, <clears throat> and resulting in his death as well. So we have threats uh, to this line because of their wickedness. But then we see in verse 11, the line callously protected by Judah. What's Judah's response in light of this? He's, he's, he's already given Tamar to Ur, and that didn't work out. Gave Tamar to Onan, and that didn't work out. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, verse 11, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. He sent her away. He seemed to be of the opinion that she was some kind of black widow, that she was some kind of a danger to his children, that, that she was cursed or she was bad luck or something like that, and he wanted her gone. And though, as we read in Deuteronomy, the expectation was that she would be given to the next son, Judah was examining the situation and thought, you know, I've already lost two to her. I'm not willing to lose a third to her. So why don't you just go live with your dad for a while until my son grows up and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll readdress it. And so he, he, he sets her, sends her away. He sets that, uh, that law aside and that expectation, though, uh, though the, the custom and the culture and the importance of bearing a uh, an heir was so important, he's willing to set all of that aside because of his fear. And actually we see, if you skip down to verse 14, the end of 14 there, she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Judah didn't keep his word. And I doubt whether he re- re- ever really intended to keep his word. And so he does not give Tamar, to his son. And so he's seeking to protect his line, but he's endangering it further. And so we have Judah here is not a good man. He's not an upstanding uh, dad. He's not a very good father-in-law. He actually sent her away. And then finally, thirdly, we see the line graciously established. And I think this is why this chapter is in this section of Genesis, because of what we find in this section right here. The line is graciously established. We're just going to work our, th- our way through this, uh, this paragraph that we have here. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, 
Shua's daughter died. So Judah's Canaanite wife dies. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. So his wife dies. And after his mourning period is over, he's going back to work. And so he's going out to where the sheep are, to where the sheep are going to be sheared. He goes there and he's with uh, his friend Hira the Adullamite. So he leaves. He's not in the house anymore. And when Tamar was told, verse 13, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She hears that something's happening. She knows that his situation has changed. She knows that, that he, uh, her mother-in-law has died. What does she do? Verse 14, she took off her widow's garments. Remember, she's been a widow all this time. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Inaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. What is she doing? What is she doing? Well, there, there is a, a minority report that says what she's doing is putting on a veil like a betrothed woman would put on. And she's betrothed, isn't she? She's betrothed to the youngest son, Shelah. And so the minority report of scholars say she's, she's put on this veil because she wants to remind Judah when he walks by that she's betrothed to his son, who's fully grown now but hasn't been given to her. And so that's the minority report, but I don't really think that's the case. I think, I think she has something more devious going on. Perhaps I'm wrong about her, and I, I, I hope I am. But it seems like the way she dresses herself up, not only does she put a, a veil on herself, but she wraps herself up, disguising herself, and she places herself at the entrance of the city so that he would walk by and see her. But she's dressed up, bundled up, in a way that he won't recognize her. I think what she's doing is putting on the garments and assuming the position and the posture of a prostitute. She's putting herself in his way. What a plan she has come up with. But look at verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. That was how he interpreted it. For she had covered her face. So he didn't know who she was. He thought she was a prostitute. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. He sees her, and he goes into her. He asks if he, if he could go into her and responds as if she's actually a prostitute. And she responds in answer as if she were actually a prostitute. This, the story is not going well. I mean, we've had the first son die. We've had the second son die. Are we going to have the dad die? What's going to happen in this situation? What's, what's going on here? So he said, let me come in. And she said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? What price will you pay? What are you going to give me? Which is the response a prostitute would make. Verse 17, he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. I'm going to send it. I'll pay you tomorrow. I'll send it on. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, I need a down payment. 
I need a pledge. I need something to guarantee that you will indeed send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. These things that can identify you, they're important to you. They're special and particular to you, recognizable as yours, valuable to you, though not valuable to me. What pledge shall I give? She says, your signet, your cord, your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. What in the world is going on in this passage? What is going on in Judah's life? What is going on in this family? So he gives the pledge, goes into her, and she conceives by him. Verse 19, then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. She went back to her dad's house. She went back to dressing the way she would in mourning. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Can't find her. Verse 23, Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. What a story. What, what, a, what a scandal in the life of Judah. What a scandal in his family. And it gets worse. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral, and moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. So he finds out about it. The word gets out that this happened. Not, not that the event happened, but that she has become pregnant. That she's been immoral. Look at his reply. Can you imagine? Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. We're, we're getting a sketch of what Judah's like. It's not a good picture. And he's not... A good man, bring her out, he says, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she's prepared. She's got the, the, the evidence. As she's being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she held up the items and she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. She's got him now. Her plan has come to fruition. I don't know when she concocted it. I don't know how it all came about. But, but nevertheless, she's in a position where she has finally conceived. She's never been able to do that before. She's finally conceived. And now she's been caught. She's being hauled out as an adulteress because she's betrothed. And so it's, it's, it's not just premarital sex. This is adultery because she has a betrothed husband, though they've not been brought together. She's to be destroyed, she's to be killed, but she has an ace up her sleeve. And she says, I'm pregnant by the person who owns these things. Do you recognize these? Verse 26. Judah is really on the line, isn't he? He's really been caught. 
What's he going to do? What's his response going to be? Verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. He's been brought out, he's been called up short, he's been exposed for the man that he is. And he's not a good man. But he says, he recognizes, and he declares before everyone there, she's more righteous than I am. He had just said, bring her out and let her be put to death. Let her be burned for what she's done. She's so guilty, it's such a vile thing to be involved in, in, uh, in, in adultery like that and just let her be killed. And she says, like Nathan the prophet, you are the man. And like with David, when Nathan the prophet approached him and, and explained the story, explained and exposed David's guilt, like David owned up, Judah owns up. And says, she is more righteous than I am. I'm at fault here. This is my fault because I did not give her to my son Shelah. And so he takes ownership of it. He confesses it. He makes it all known. He owns up to it. He doesn't doesn't try to slough it off. He doesn't try to explain it. He doesn't try to uh, make excuses. He doesn't try to make light of it or make less of it or something like that. He's repentant. And how do we know he's repentant? Well, he owned that publicly, which would have been a terrible thing. But the conclusion of the verse, he did not know her again. He's been called up short. He's been been awakened out of the stupor of his sin. And he did not know her again. And we see the conclusion here as we finish 27 and following. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. We've seen twins before. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But he drew back his hand, and as he did, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So finally... This woman who has been married twice and used a third time has children. And she has, she has boys. And she has two of them, twins. And you've got a situation where the, the one who is technically older, Zara, actually is considered to be the younger. And Perez, who's technically the younger, he comes out in a breach and he uh, takes the lead and he will take the lead in the family. But nevertheless, she has children. Why tell this story? Well, keep your finger here because we're not going to leave this, but go to Ruth. Go to Ruth chapter 4. As you're reading through your Bible and you're uh, getting into mid-spring or probably late winter, actually, you're going to get to the genealogies. And you're going to be reading through 1 Chronicles and you're going to go cross-eyed for a little while because you can't pronounce all those Hebrew names. And that's okay, just act like you know how to pronounce them and move on. Keep on reading, but I want to tell you the genealogies are important. And here's an example. We're in Ruth chapter 4. Remember Ruth and Boaz? That whole story? 
Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez, the same Perez that we're just reading about. How did Perez come about? Because of this whole illicit relationship between Judah and Tamar. This, this terrible situation, this, this awful scandal. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. We've heard of Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Through the terrible circumstances and the horrible sin involved in this scandalous situation, out of that, God brings the line of David who is in the line of Christ. And so that's the story, and I have a couple of implications and I have a couple of applications that I want to make. The first implication we see God's grace in using such a man as Judah to bring about his redemptive plan of bringing forth the Messiah. Judah was not a good guy. We, we saw a turn. But Judah is not a good man. But God uses this man, and God even uses this scandalous, illicit situation that's technically, technically considered to be incest. To bring forth the Messiah. You see the grace of God in this. That as we read through Genesis 37 through 50, we see again and again with Joseph that he's an upstanding character. He's a, he, 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 he may, have, uh, may or may not have been a little cocky in the beginning, but you see him stand up to temptation. You see him rise to the challenge. You see him be used of God in major ways. Joseph is an upstanding and... and uh, Christ-like character in so many ways. And in contrast to that, we have Judah. But this story of Judah, as bad as it is, and as murky as it is, and as sinful as it is, and as shameful as it is, God uses that to bring forth the Messiah. Remember Judah's past. What, what do we know about Judah from before? Well, just in the immediate preceding chapter in 37, whose idea was it to sell Joseph to slavery? Judah. And here we have him marrying a Canaanite. He's moved away from his family, left his family in 38.1. He's married a Canaanite woman. He's, he's, he's dropped his obligations to Tamar, which are actually obligations to his firstborn son, in not giving Tamar eventually to Shelah. He doesn't do that. Beyond all of those things, he's a sexually immoral man. His wife has just died. He's just finished mourning. And apparently the first prostitute he sees, he goes into. And finally, his hypocrisy shows itself when he thinks that Tamar should be put to death when he's the other person in the relationship. He's just as guilty of incest as she is. With Judah being such a man, how shocking is the grace of God. That God would use him and his descendants to eventually bring about the coming 
seed of the woman, the Messiah, who would, who would bring forgiveness of sins to all those who trust him. You see the grace of God at work in this awful story that I would rather not have to read out loud. Secondly, second implication. This chapter also shows us God's grace to mature and sanctify Judah in preparation for later roles that he will play. We, Judah, Judah, it's his idea to sell his brother. Great job, Judah. Good big brother right there, right? He's gonna, it's his idea. He's going to sell him. And now we have this whole story with all that goes on with it. He's not a good man, but what happens when he's called up short? When he's called to account for his sin, when his sin is laid before him, and she says, you are the man. He finally owns it. And he says, she's more righteous than I am. I caused this whole thing because I wouldn't give Shella to her. God is at work changing him. God is at work in his character. And why does this matter? Why do we really care? Well, of course, we love to see um, you know, someone in a story like this, someone as important as Judah. We love to see growth and, and things like that in their life. But later on, Joseph, who is now down in Egypt, the famine is going to happen and Joseph is going to, by means of interpreting the visions and his wisdom that he gives, he's going to be raised to a position of, of, of next to supreme authority in all of Egypt. And there's going to come a point when the rest of the family is back in Canaan and they're hungry because of the famine in the land. And Joseph has demanded, being in disguise, he has demanded of his brothers, send down your youngest son, Benjamin, so that I can see him, or else no more food for you. So the boys, the brothers travel back to Canaan, they're talking to their dad, and Jacob says, no way, that's my baby boy. He's the youngest. I've already lost Joseph. I don't want to lose Benjamin too. And so he says, not a chance, because what's going to happen is you're going to take him down there, and, and they're going to keep him. They're going to keep him, throw him in jail, they're going to kill him. Something bad's going to happen to him, not going to happen. And what, is, what does one brother say? Judah. Do you know what Judah says? He says, I will be a pledge of his safety. Judah, who has done all the things we just read about. Judah, who's the one responsible for selling the brother, says, I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require it. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. There is change that happens in Judah's life. God is at work changing him from the man he is in 37 to the man he's going to be in 43 who's willing to lay down his life. God is at work maturing this man, sanctifying this man, this selfish and fearful man into a brother who's willing to give his own life for his brother. Thirdly, the third implication, the key to Understanding this episode, this chapter, I believe, is the children. Judah's first three sons are half Canaanite because he took a Canaanite wife. Tamar is given to Ur, his firstborn. Tamar, it seems like, is a Canaanite also, by the way. Tamar is given to Ur, his firstborn, but the Lord put him to death for some wickedness before they could conceive a child. 
So then Tamar is given to Onan so they can conceive a child who will then be considered the heir of the firstborn. And though Onan publicly takes Tamar as his wife, he refuses to conceive a son who would be considered not his heir, but his brother's heir. And it's this refusal to give his brother an heir that causes the Lord to put this brother to death also. So now where's Tamar? Well, she's a childless widow being bounced around households. Judah doesn't want her around anymore, so he sends her back to, his, to her dad. She's a childless widow twice over. She's destitute. And she's not been able to give either her first or her second husband an heir. And then Judah fails to give her to his third son. Her circumstances will never get better. This is her one shot, is Shelah. She's destitute. Now, as a side note, Judah's first wife was Canaanite, and so his sons are half Canaanite, right? Now, we, we don't know of the spiritual status of the sons, but we can observe their life, can't we? The first one was killed for wickedness. second one was killed for wickedness. We don't know about the third one yet. He's pretty young. Give him, chance. Give him time, right? But what would happen if those half-Canaanite sons who seem to be at least half-Canaanite in their, not just in their genetics, but, but in their lifestyle, if those sons were given to a Canaanite wife, the offspring of that would be only a quarter Jewish, three-quarters Canaanite, probably entirely Canaanite in all the ways that matter. But because of their own sin and in the providence of God, Judah's grandchildren are not three-quarters Canaanite. Very interesting how the Lord, through the sin of every character involved, preserves the line of Judah, purifies the line of Judah, such that he himself conceives a, a child with Tamar. So all of his kids are half Canaanite. But at least his grandkids aren't three-quarters Canaanite. Actually, we would see how the line continues when we read in Ruth. Where does the line continue? Continues on to Boaz. Continues on to Jesse and David and Jesus. So the Lord providentially worked in this situation. But, but here's, here's Tamar, and she's destitute. Her life's not going to get any better. And so out of desperation, she devises a way to conceive a child and an heir with Judah himself. And when she does... One of the children she conceives will carry on that family name, carry on that family line that will eventually lead to David and will eventually lead to Jesus. The focus of the story is really the children. It's not the, it's not the sin of Judah, as bad as it is, as scandalous as, as it is. It's not the sin of Tamar or Onan or Ur. I believe the interpretive key, the point, the focus of the story is really the children, not the deviant sexuality of the parents. And when we look at it that way, it fits right into the chapters around it. Genesis has very often been about the children, focusing on the children and the line and the descent, particularly in contrast to the surrounding cultures, including, by the way, Canaanite culture. What God is telling us by focusing on the children throughout Genesis is that they are important to Him. They are not to be treated the way the surrounding cultures treat children the way the Canaanites treat children. 
You've heard of Moloch worship. You've heard of these other ways that children were, were used for their own purposes, for the purposes of the parents, that there would, be, there would be children actually conceived and born for the purpose of being offered up as a sacrifice to their God and killed so that the parents could prosper. If that's not evil, I don't know what evil is. Those were the surrounding cultures. And in contrast to that, God would have His people value children and see children as important and to be protected, to be raised up and to be trained to know their God. The culture surrounding Israel here sounds familiar. God's people are to be entirely different from them. For Abraham's people, God's promises are bound up in their children. For the Christian, God's promises are meant to be passed on to our children. Those are the implications. Three applications. First of all, built off of these same implications. First of all, we need to change the way we think about children. We Certainly as a culture, we need to change the way we think about children. The culture that's around us thinks about children pretty much like the Canaanites thought about children. Abortion is still considered an acceptable form of birth control in our country. Yes, I know about uh, what has happened with Roe v. Wade and, and, uh, and all of that, and, and praise God for that. I rejoice in that. But it's still an option for people. It's still an option people take. It's considered to be a form of birth control. Children might get in the way of our advancement, our fulfillment in life, and so we just don't have them as a culture. And once we do have them, we, we all too often don't, don't want to take responsibility to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord as we're commanded in Scripture. We think about children in an, so often in a, in, a, in a very pagan way. We need to be instructed by Scripture how we ought to think about them, seeing that God is the one who opens the womb. God is the one who gives children, and He does so on purpose. And when He gives them to us, we are to protect them, we are to care for them, and we are to train them to know Christ as their Savior, that they too would, would worship our God, that they would be redeemed. We are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We must learn to view our children from conception in the womb to physical and spiritual maturity. We must learn to view our children in a way that is shaped by Scripture. And folks, I, I want to challenge us that though there are great distinctions between the way we view children and the way the unbelieving world around us views children, I want to remind us that there are still ways, distinctions between the way we view children in some ways, and the way Scripture views children. We need to read the Bible with a view to understanding what the Bible would have us understand about children. We need to change the way we think about kids. That's the first application. That's its own sermon all to itself, but we dare not skip it here. The second point of application, take heart that God eventually works maturity and sanctification in His people, even despite their disobedience. 
You, you look at your own life and you see episodes in your life where you're thinking, well, you know, I, I wasn't like Tamar and I wasn't like Judah, but, you know, you could have written your own crazy chapter about me, right? You recognize periods in your life, you recognize aspects of yourself in that, and, and you think, uh, I'm off the rails and there's no way God can redeem me. There's no way God can redeem a person like that. God redeemed Judah of all people. He can redeem you. And the, one of the points of application is for us to take heart that God, in, in the heart of His people, He eventually does work maturity and sanctification despite their disobedience. Grace is greater than all my sin. Third point of application. Trust God's sovereign hand to bring good for His people out of even the darkest chapters. You may look at your life. You may look at the life of your family, uh, of someone near to you, and you think, that is a dark chapter. And I would rather not read it. I would rather people not know about it. And, it. and it probably is a death knell for any kind of blessing in that person's life. I want to encourage you as we read this chapter to trust God's sovereign hand to bring good for His people even out of those kinds of chapters. Probably the older saints among us who have walked with the Lord a long time can testify to that. And if they cared to, they could share stories about how they had dark chapters, perhaps not unlike this one, from which God in His sovereign and good hand worked good in their life. For the people around them, for their children, for themselves. God really does cause all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. This chapter shows us the grace of God and the sinfulness of man, doesn't it? If you were to treat Judah the way he deserves to be treated, you would throw him on the fire with Tamar, and they would both burn. But you see the grace of God at work instead. Judah is not a good man, and he comes to realize that when Tamar shows him evidence. He has to deal with that fact. Yet despite that, God is putting together the family line that will ultimately lead to Jesus. God is working in the most gracious way possible that Judah's name would be attached to our Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Are you kidding me? Judah gets to be in the title? That's the grace of God. And so as we close out this chapter, may we see our own spiritual need as well. And may we own it. Not obfuscating it, not covering it up, not ignoring it, not explaining it away, but may we own it. And may we look to Jesus, who descended from this Judah, according to the flesh, but is the Son of God, who is able to save all such sinners who recognize their need and put their faith in Him. And may that be you and me. Let's pray. Father, as we have read about this scandalous story, it's uncomfortable at times. 
to look so closely at such wickedness, such perversion. And yet it's in your word, placed where it is, and you have a purpose for it. And in this dark chapter, we see your great grace overcoming even the the most wicked intentions, motivations of wicked people. And from all of this, generations later, you bring forth your Son. Father, as we look at our own lives and we see perhaps chapters or perhaps pockets of our lives that are dark like this one, may we as well come to realize our own need. May we respond to the finger pointed at us that says, you are the man, you are the woman, you are the boy, you are the girl, guilty before God. And what do you deserve but His judgment? What can you expect but His judgment if it weren't for Christ? And may we look to Jesus, the one who obeyed in life and in death, the one whom you raised from the dead, the one who bore in His body my sins. May we look to Him and trust in Him alone because we are guilty and He is a glorious Savior. May we find comfort. May we find hope. May we find joy and life in Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you want to pray with someone, there will be a family up here to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.